This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. But I must be prepared any time to Love, love, love me some Doobie Brothers getting into this Wednesday afternoon. It is Minutes Wednesday, Fed Minutes, that is. Uh, and to give us some context, we're going to bring in Lindsay Piegza. She is the chief economist for Stiefel Financial, joining us from Chicago. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to talk to you and help us make some sense of this. You know, I'm looking at the market here. Uh, it is gaining a little bit back toward, uh, if I can say that, toward uh, neutral territory or uh, may get to positive. We, we'll see. Uh, what do you make of these minutes? Well, we, we didn't learn too much new in terms of the expected pathway uh, for, for rate increases in the near term. Against a still very generally favorable assessment of the economy, participants noted that it would likely soon be appropriate for the committee to take another step in removing accommodation, which simply means that a June rate hike is a high probability. But at this point, the market already has a June rate hike and a September rate hike, for that matter, fully priced in at 100%. So really nothing new here in terms of market expectations, at least in the near term for Fed policy. Hey, Lindsay. Uh, we were talking with Joe Weisenthal, our markets editor, um, just after the Fed minutes crossed, Jason and I were. And it's interesting. He was saying, you know, if I had to sit down and talk with Mr. Powell and ask him a question, I would ask him about, like, you know, why aren't we seeing more inflation? Um, where are you on this? Do you feel like inflation is picking up like it should should be based on what we've seen historically? Or are you still wondering, too, like, where is it? Well, it's a good question because we have seen inflation pick up more recently. Looking at the Fed's preferred inflation measure, the PCE, we did see as of the latest March report that headline number now reaching the Fed's 2% objective with the core, which excludes food and energy, close behind at 1.9%. But we've been here before. We've seen mm-hmm. the PCE pick up temporarily and then fall back down below 2%. We also know that some of the more recent increase is a reflection of price declines this price last year, excuse me, this time last year, and they're now falling out of the calculation. So as they say in the minutes, it's still premature to conclude that inflation will remain at these 2% levels. So there's a question of sustainability still among uh, the discussion at the FOMC. And Lindsay, the, the minutes do point out that when the meeting was happening or immediately preceding the meeting, there were some geopolitical concerns specifically around U.S.-China relations, around potential tariffs and whatnot. Obviously, a lot of those concerns have abated a bit more recently. How do you think about that as you study the market and and study the market in the context of the Fed? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, policy officials very rarely comment on fiscal policy uh, initiatives. However, we've seen this before now in uh, several of the the minutes that policymakers are very concerned about some of the downside risks Mm. in terms of tax policy, in terms of 
in terms of trade, in terms of rising federal deficits. So it's very interesting that at this point, monetary policy officials are now turning the, the focus, or at least turning some of the focus, back to what's happening in Washington. It's certainly on their radar screen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, you know, it just... I feel like, if anything, if we've learned, I mean, this is a Fed uh, continuing the policy of incredible amounts of transparency. We've heard from so many Fed speakers uh, over the last month or so, even just the last few weeks here. So I feel like the markets, Lindsay, will be, you know, ready for whatever comes our way. What, though, could be a bit of a shock to the system at this point? Well, I think the Fed right now is very focused on the reaction of the market in terms of the yield curve. And we saw a little bit of that discussion in the minutes here. Remember, the flattening of the yield curve is a warning sign that should we get an inverted curve, that a recession is lurking around the corner. An inverted curve has preceded a recession in every uh, economic scenario. In right. World War II. But an so inverted curve doesn't necessarily mean we get a recession, correct? Well, it, it, it has been an indication of a recession every mm-hmm. time. So uh, it's not necessarily that it, the recession will be immediate. It usually comes with a lag about 12 to 18 months. But historically, an inverted curve does mean a recession is coming. And I think we can all agree that at some point another recession is coming. Mm-hmm. We've been in this, quote, recovery for quite a long time, and it's getting a bit long in the tooth. But we have to question the, the Fed's motivation to essentially tighten us into that recessionary uh, level. The economy is still very delicate, struggling to get 2%-ish GDP, stabilized 2%-ish inflation. So the concern would be, why raise too soon, too fast at this point? And I I think that was a lot of the discussion that Fed members had uh, earlier this month. Lindsay, I have to ask you, you know, one of the questions that always comes up as we're having these conversations, especially as the minutes come out, is how What's the nature, what's the personality of this Fed? And it's always interesting to think about when you have a new Fed chair, as we do with, with Chairman Powell. What, what do you make of it so far? Has he, is he making his mark yet, or is it still to be determined? I think it's still to be determined. I think right now it's very much the committee in total running the program. Uh, as as Carol mentioned earlier, there, there's a lot of Fed speak. There's a lot of Fed conversation out there. So it's almost as if the members, uh, not the chairman itself mm. or himself, is really directing the dialogue, directing the conversation. But he's stepping into some pretty big shoes that Bernanke and Yellen left for him, trying to navigate now in the latter part of the, the recovery after one of the greatest financial crises. Yeah. Uh, I do think that he's going to take a page out of their playbook and continue to try to muddle along, keep the economy going. Uh, but it's going to be a very delicate line to raise rates right. at a fast enough pace without squashing the recovery. Lindsay, 10 seconds. Got to be quick. So what are you expecting for Fed policy for the rest of the year? I think we see a rate hike in June and September, and that's it. Inflation is going to be very, uh, very delicate, still struggling for that sustainability uh, yeah. level around 2%. All right. Thank you so much. Lindsay, thank you. Lindsay Piegza, she's chief economist at Stiefel Financial on the phone in Chicago. Yeah, it's a tough situation when it comes to Turkey uh, entering the throes of a full-blown currency crisis. And then we had some moves 
by their central bank. Let's make sense of it. What you need to know as investors, Damien Sassauer is fixed income strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of researchers and analysts. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. First of all, let's get us up to speed. It's a story we've been following for a while now, um, thanks to uh, Mr. Erdogan. And uh, tell us where we are. What's the latest about what's going on in Turkey? So here's the latest. I mean, if you look at emerging market return to contribution year to date, Turkey's a lost leader, right? And um, along with Argentina, there's been a, a, a loss in confidence in the central bank's credibility. Um, in the case of Turkey, it's been its independence, right? President Erdogan has openly said he wants greater control over monetary policy domestically ahead of next month's election. And uh, That's and so, just a major no-no for investors, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, central bank credibility is all you have. And if there yeah. are inflation-fighting credibility... Slow down, because you're saying important stuff. Okay. If <laughs> Sorry, Carol. No, she's right. I but I'm trying to keep up with I you, I want to hear it all. If the central bank loses its inflation fighting credibility, it will not be able to combat inflation when prices begin to rise. Mm-hmm. So what you've just seen is the central bank attempt to reassert itself on the market by raising rates 300 basis points. But did they really raise rates? The answer is no. Even though it was an extraordinary intra-meeting move, it was really only the late liquidity window. It wasn't one-week repo or any of the real you know, short rates that might very well impact monetary policy and, and, and conditions locally. So so look, I still think Governor Murat Setinkanya has, has some work to do ahead of him in sort of reestablishing and reasserting the Turkish Central Bank's confidence here. So Damien, political context here, I'm, I'm looking at headlines that are literally ca- crossing the Bloomberg right now as we speak. Uh, Erdogan apparently speaking to some former MPs in Ankara right now. He's saying the lira's weakness is out of line with Turkish fundamentals, and the exchange, the exchange rate issue is, quote, part of a global problem. This has become a highly, highly politically charged yeah. situation. Help us understand the push and pull between Erdogan and the central well, bank. Well, it's, it's fundamental. I mean, f- basically, <laughs> Turkey and the Turkish financial system in particular is funded by the West. It's funded in U.S. dollars. And about three, four, call five years ago, Erdogan and, 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 and Turkey basically pivoted away from the West. They pivoted toward Russia. They pivoted toward China. And when you have a disconnect in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy, such as we're seeing in, uh, in Turkey right now, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a recipe for disaster, right? Because, I mean, you just can't ignore the fact that you're funded by the West in dollars. And when those creditors, you know, become sort of sour on your <laughs> ability mm-hmm. to manage monetary policy, you know, you kind of wind up in trouble and you wind up, you know, chasing your tail, which is what you're seeing right now with 300 rate hikes to 16 and a half percent. So so how are the financial markets kind of treating Turkey at this point? Is everybody running scared? So, What's happening? So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can't see the transmission mechanism into broader emerging markets from Turkey alone. Certainly the asset class is on its back right now, reeling from, right. you know, all sorts of idiosyncratic events, such as Mexico, Brazil, you have elections, Argentina, obviously, some others, Russia. And, and on that point, I, wanted, I just want to jump in because one of the things in, in one of the Bloomberg stories today that jumped out at me is Mark Mobius, the ultimate emerging market <laughs> bull, told Bloomberg, quote, we still could have some downside in the emerging markets. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, right. Tell us if something we don't know. Mobius is saying this, though, <laughs> goodness gracious. What What is this idiosyncrasy? I, I definitely right think now? we're going to see some real world casualties before all is said and done here. I don't think we're through with this yet. Um, what I do believe you need to focus on now in places like Turkey and Argentina, in terms of differentiating between emerging markets, it's going to be those that have a solvency issue and those that have a liquidity issue. Right. And mm-hmm. what you're seeing in Turkey is a full-blown liquidity crisis about to take hold. It reminds me, it's very reminiscent to me, of what happened 
happened in Nigeria when President Buhari decided not to appreciate his currency when, or depreciate his currency when oil prices collapsed in 2014. Right. It's just he just wouldn't do it. And it you know, recession followed and, you know, it's still trying to dig its way out of that horrible well, mess. That's the other thing. I mean, take a look at at uh, Turkey, what their unemployment, I think, is hovering around 10 percent here. I mean, they really need a structural reform of the economy. I mean, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that's going on that needs to be done. Well, I mean, if you look at its 10-year yield, if you look at the price of its five-year CDS, which is, you know, credit protection, federal, if you look at two's tens, it's, it's, there's only one other country in the world, and it's, it's obviously another emerging market, Venezuela, that has cool. worse levels than them. So, I mean, if you want to pit it against anybody, and create that and paint a really bad picture. I mean, mean, that's where we are. So, I mean, you're looking at negative 217 basis points, twos, tens. It's the only other country with an inverted yield curve is Venezuela. So, I mean, you know, you're you're at these levels which are very extreme. So I take her... Turkey 10-year yield, is this right? 14.3? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking at our, our WB That's, page. And the, the two years at 16 and change. Jeez. So there's your inversion, right? So, yeah, and five year CDS at 280 basis so, points is just so absurd. As, okay, as investors, 30 seconds left here. What do they need to be looking out for over the next week or two? I mean, you got to focus. It's a fluid situation. I mean, yeah, you got to be looking at external monetary and liquidity metrics. You got to look at reserve adequacy. You got to look at import cover, money supply, external ratios, currency volatility, most importantly. And I think you're going to see a heightened focus on maturity schedules and what, what sort of debt's coming do and, and, and how are they refinancing for themselves and at what level? Can they manage their debt? I would like to hope they can. Yeah. Well, I would like to hope to win the lottery too, <laughs> Damien. It ain't happening. I didn't win the Powerball. I'm just saying. When your um, fixed income strategist is talking about the business of hope. I'm not sure. Uh, don't put words in my mouth. If ifs and buts were candy nuts, we'd all have fun at Christmas. That's what I like to say. Damien Sasshauer, fixed income strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you. Thank you. And I sure do love it when we uh, bring nice southern gentlemen into our studio here in New York. Uh, Today we are joined by Cal Turner Jr. He is the former CEO, of course, of Dollar General. He has a new book out called My Father's Business, The Small Town Values That Built Dollar General into a Billion-Dollar Company. Cal, great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Wonderful to be here. So you wrote this book. What made you do that? What made you sit down and and put pen to paper here? Well, the book came out of another book that my senior pastor and I were asked to write on followership. And the ghostwriter on that book kept saying, well, Cal, yes, that's good stuff. We're going to put that aside for your book. (laughs) I had no idea of a book. (laughs) And, And then at the end of this project, I said, Rob, how long did this take us? He said, well... It took two years for me to talk you into it and six years for us to do it. Wow. So it's been eight years in the making. I'm, That's I, interesting. So it took you a little bit after the financial crisis, which I know when you walked in, I said, I'm kind of fascinated by these dollar-oriented stores yeah. because I feel like coming off the crisis, we saw a lot of consumers who might not have gone into them before all of a sudden noticing them. And I feel like that they've been riding a bit of a wave since. Yes. Well, I, I think. So, but again, I'm, I don't speak for the present. I've been retired since, oh, three. But but why do you think the modeling and take us back to the history? Because it goes back to your grandfather, correct? It does indeed. And the great depression, the thinking behind this store. Well, the reason the Turner family got into retailing is because it seemed so much better than farming. Right. (laughs) My grandfather was a third grade educated 
lad who became head of the family when his father was killed. Mm-hmm. And he worked hard, saved something out of every check, and assumed he should learn something from everybody he met because everybody else was smarter than he. That's a good leadership principle. So learn something. So he listened to Listen, learn, yeah. worked hard. And uh, it was a struggle through the Depression. But he and my father did start a wholesale company three months before I was born. And then after the Second World War, my father discovered that wholesaling was doomed. You have to be directly in touch with the consumer. Well, and, and I want to talk about that because one of the things that I think gets lost in the – in even when you talk about Dollar General as a name is the general piece of it because really the void that Dollar General – filled was that local store where yes. someone could go and, and get just about anything. It was it it was a somewhat radical concept that that caught on uh that caught on quite well. Why is that? Well now Jason, my father used to say that one dollar is the best price point God ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and why not start a store where every day is dollar day? Right. And he put general in the name because back in the country, the general store is where you bought anything that was sold. Now, you're from Atlanta. You don't know anything about the real country, probably. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Man, that's, that's harsh. But, but, well, I, I'm not saying that I do either. Uh, I started out trying to learn from our customers. They they understood struggling life. They were some of the smartest people I've ever met. They come into our store, and I thought, by golly, I believe you can build a great retail company with them as employees. And one of the things you point out in your book, and I'm glad you brought that up, is this notion of you know the folks on the front lines are really the ones who understand the customers much better than the people back at the back at the home office. So oh, how yeah. do you take advantage of that? How do you tap that so that it's actual usable information, especially as a company grows as fast as Dollar General did? Well, <clears throat> it's it's not easy to stay in touch with that. But I began by announcing to everybody that I was over my head in my job. I was the boss's son and I had tried to do all of the jobs in the company and I was good at none of them. But that made me respect those who did those jobs. You know this company. You know our problems. You're in the midst of our problems. You can help us to have fewer of them if we're smart enough to listen to you. And we'd like to build a company together, and we will share the success with you if you'll help us. Mm. And the culture of a retail company is very important to the retail company's success. I feel like we're in an era where there's almost a bit of a leadership void. And I feel like people are trying to figure out what kind of leader is needed in today's environment, where in many ways we have very disconnected populations around the globe. So in your experience, your own leadership, your father's leadership, you know, what would you say would be good lessons for everyone? 
You'll be happy to know that I really learned leadership from the women in my life, not from my father. Amen, sister. Uh, 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 uh. I learned business from my father. That's interesting. But my mother taught me about life and people and getting the right connection with people. For example, when I was a teenager, my mother used to say to me, son, for a good boy... You get into a lot of trouble, <laughs> which taught me that anytime there's a problem, separate the person from the problem. Get beyond guilt and blame, and you can get people united in solving a problem together. Mm-hmm. And so I threw my mother at my father. When something would go wrong in the business, he was old school retailing, and he'd say, who did it? And I said, I'm not going to tell you, Daddy. He said, do you know who did it? I do, but I'm not going to tell you. We're, instead of who did it, we're going to ask what happened and who needs help to fix what happened. And that applies to today. Yes, but, so I, many issues. but there again, I, I was yeah. throwing my mother at my father, but I didn't tell him where I got it. <laughs> One of the things you talk about is that uh, as you ran Dollar General, the, the company had some principles that they referred to as sacred cows. Yes. C-A-L-S. Yes. And one of them that struck me was don't hire anyone who does not walk fast. <laughs> that was one of my dad's things. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, you have to have a sense of urgency in retailing. And you need people who get things done. Every Saturday night when my dad would call every store manager in the company up until we had 30 stores, he would doodle one three-letter word, N-O-W, now. Wow. Get it done now. Hire somebody who walks fast. And he also said, and son, don't hire anybody who plays golf <laughs> or anybody who fishes. They both take too much time. <laughs> and son, if you ever hire anybody who does both, I will fire you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That was another sacred cow. What are, I feel like there's another book in here. I'm just saying. Or maybe a Netflix special or Absolutely. something. Absolutely. I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. Cal Turner Jr., thank you so much. Congratulations on your book. We're looking forward to the movie adaptation. The, the book, <laughs> by the you. way, called My Father's Business, The Small Town Values That Built Dollar General Into a Billion Dollar Company. That was fun. Good luck. Something tells me I'm into something good. Never a dull moment in Silicon Valley, and we turn to one of our rock star reporters, Eric Newcomer, to talk about a big story that he has on the terminal today, and that's about Silicon Valley wanting to tax the big tech companies just like Seattle did. Eric, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So what's at stake here? I mean, this is this is a big story in part because of the dollars involved. I mean, these are some of the most valuable and most profitable companies out there. Uh, What is Silicon Valley poised to do with the likes of Google and Apple? Yeah, um, I mean, I think, you know, Mountain View, Cupertino, East Palo Alto, San Francisco, all see sort of these giant pools of money in their hometown tech companies. And those cities have long been sort of protective and hands-off of those companies because they wanted them to keep growing there. But we've reached this point where uh, the pool of money available from those co- taxing those companies is so large, that, and especially after the federal tax changes, um, it's just sort of an appealing target for cities who, who feel like they need more money. Yeah, because yeah. these are companies that 
really stood or stand to benefit, have benefited a billion dollars for Alphabet alone. Uh, their tax bill dropped uh, yep. based on the uh, the new federal guidelines. So what do they really – how feasible, I guess, is this? Oh, I mean, the, the tech companies can definitely afford it. I mean, think about Mountain View, where Google's located. You know, they want to raise, you know, a $10 million tax. For Google, that's a joke. I mean, the real <laughs> stakes are the, you know, broader sort of slippery slope type consequences that, you know, if they start sort of forking over more money to Mountain View every time they have a new sort of pet project, then, then they're just sort of carrying the weight of the city. So it's, it's that concern more than sort of any one tax being that big of a threat uh, to these companies' bottom line, you know. And I think that's sort of what's happening right now. And you have these liberal cities that see these companies getting t- big tax breaks, and they're, they're ready to get their cut. What's the what's the end game here? Because I think about, you know, in your story, you write about how Seattle did it to help solve the city's homeless problem. And, you know, I was out in San Francisco in the last month or so uh, meeting with a lot of folks in the real estate industry. And they talked about, you know, the problem constantly of folks being able to afford housing within the Silicon Valley, San Francisco area. So what's the aim of taxing right. big tech in exactly. Silicon Valley? What do they hope to get out of it and use that yeah, money for? It's not just, oh, there's a big pool of money available. There are real problems that these cities share. So I'd sort of say it's homelessness, housing, and transportation. And they're all very interrelated. It's either getting more housing, you know, in their city or getting people to where they can get to more housing. I mean, if you take the case of Cupertino, you know, they're very focused on making sure that teachers can continue to live in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as as the tech crowd sort of gets richer and richer, it feels like they need to either subsidize housing, sort of somehow expand government housing, you know, sort of lots of different proposals fundamentally to help create more sort of low and middle income housing stock. Right, well, and, uh, and Eric, remember, that, can I just say, remember that story there was a Silicon, about Silicon Valley, about the local teachers like sleeping in their car because yeah, they just right. couldn't afford housing? I mean, it's yeah. really extreme. And, and I think that that's a really important point here is that one of the reasons that this is gaining so much momentum and people are getting behind it is because they're – they're talking about the tech companies paying essentially for problems that they are causing directly. <laughs> exactly. yeah, right. Right? I mean, there's a straight line here. This yeah, is yeah. this is like, oh, well, you guys have made a lot of money. Can right. you help us with this yeah. you know, environmental remediation yeah. problem? No, this exactly. is transportation and housing, which are at the core of the aftermath, I guess, right. of, of what's happened there. Yeah, in the case of Mountain View, I mean, I was talking to the mayor and he made the point, you know, this elevated rail system that they're thinking about, I mean, that would help Google. So it's right. not even just Google caused the problem. Some of the infrastructure they want to spend money on, you know, would certainly benefit these companies. And and the companies haven't come out super strong against it to their credit. I think it's still sort of feeling out. In Seattle, <laughs> Amazon did. But in, in some of uh, Amazon sort of force the number down from what was, you know, 150 million tax at first to to just a 50 million dollar tax. But so far, Google uh, has been much more quiet, at least in the case of Mountain View. Eric, I feel like, too, these big tech companies, Google, Facebook, they have been before Congress. They have been in the spotlight for not great reasons in terms of use of data and privacy. So I just feel like how does the bigger, broader environment maybe put a little bit more pressure on them to maybe come across with this? Just got about 30 seconds left here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're under a lot of scrutiny. So I think, you know, the local politicians feel 
sort of the political air cover to go after them a little bit. You know, in other years where they might have been much gentler, now they're sort of willing to call them out. And so they're, they're, they're willing to do this. Great story. Eric Newcomer, always on the cutting edge. We really appreciate you joining us. That is Eric Newcomer joining us from San Francisco. He is a startup reporter for Bloomberg News. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. Our next guest is optimistic but has some concerns when it comes to the financial markets. Gene Goldman is with us, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at Cetera Financial Group, based in El Segundo, California, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. I love it when people come from outside New York. I'm just curious, what in general, when you talk to folks, business people and so on, investors uh, out in California, what do they see as the outlook? Everyone's pretty optimistic. I mean, they, you know, obviously – they they're very optimistic about the economy, about you know people. You know, obviously in California, you look at gas prices. So everyone's saying, "Oh my God, gas prices nationally are three dollars per, per per gallon." We wish we had three dollars per gallon. So they're optimistic. You know, they're looking at earnings, they're seeing the reports, the stock market's up. Obviously, we've had some volatility pick up, so that's scared people. But think about this: long term volatility on average, the S and P five hundred moves about one percent per week on average. Last year, it only moved eight times. So now it's about 29 times so far this year. Pretty normal volatility, but people are scared right now. So Gene, today, obviously, a lot of the headlines are based on the Fed minutes. Market is up marginally. It was down earlier, but not a huge move either way, uh, based on what the, the Fed had to say. How are you reading the Fed right now? I actually thought it was a great move. I mean, think about it. This morning, we looked, at, we looked at the markets when they opened, down 200 points. Things bounced back a little bit. And then the Fed minutes came out. We're pretty optimistic about that. The, the information was great. Like, think about this. You know, the Fed, after their May 2nd meeting, had talked about symmetric. And symmetric, everyone kept questioning that, symmetric inflation. And that suggested that, that maybe inflation would be allowed to go above the 2% level a little bit more than people had anticipated. Great news. And we actually read this in the minutes today that, yes, inflation could exceed that 2% target a little bit. Great news. And you know, for the hawks out there, yes, the Fed says we will raise rates soon. Not ex- that's expected. Everyone had to expect that. But I think Kashkari came out a couple of days ago, even said that we should maybe slow down some of the rate increases. Right. So it's good news out there. And so what are you thinking in terms of raises this year? We, I think the market's saying three or four. We're saying three. I mean, we think three is good because – Inflation has picked up. We talked about wage inflation. We've mm-hmm. seen wage inflation, but technology is very deflationary. Also, you know, it's picked up, but not as much as we keep expecting. Exactly, exactly. And you know, there's still yes, you know, we have the issue with, with the tra- you know, potential tariffs and trade war, which is very inflationary near term, but very deflationary long term. This is also why we're seeing the flat yield curve. One of the reasons why it's just this concerns about tariffs. I'm assuming it's safe to say that you've seen a bunch of up and down market cycles at yes. this point, but. How do you explain this cycle or how do you anticipate this cycle ends and could it still go on for longer? Uh, the 
real crystal ball question. Yeah, I know. I, I know that. that. I know that's not a fair yeah. one because we'd all be living on Anguilla yes. if that was the case. Um, but it's, but you've got to look at it because right? mm-hmm. you've got to make investment decisions and you've yes. got to kind of have some idea of maybe where we go. Totally fair question. So think about most business cycles. They end with the combination of rising rates and declining earnings. This is very different. Yes, we are having rising rates, but earnings are actually rising. Earnings this year up about 20% expected revenue growth in the mid to upper single digits. That's all great news. Does it continue, though? We think so. I mean, the only potential um, difficulty would be think about what hurts stocks the most or companies the most. It's interest costs and labor costs, the two biggest components of the cost structure of a company. If those jump dramatically, we'd watch it carefully. But we don't see rates jumping dramatically or, or you know, costs jumping dramatically. But I think the thing to think about, too, is that we are in very unprecedented times. And everyone always says this time is different. This time really is different. We have, a, we have monetary policy. It's very, you know, Fed's raising rates. But at the same time, we have fiscal policy that's very stimulative. Mm-hmm. Interesting times. Yeah. And one of the themes that we've been hearing a lot about even today and partially driven by the news out of Turkey is some worries about emerging markets. Yes. You share some of those worries, it, it sounds like. So how do you play that? Yes. So long term, we think emerging markets are a great opportunity. But we've been there. We've seen 94. We've seen 98, where a sharp appreciation in the dollar hurts emerging markets. And we've seen the news in Turkey. Obviously, we are worried about this. Um, We've reduced our exposure to emerging markets. Our emerging markets have also had a great run, so it's a little profit-taking. But I think the key point is just to be diversified. For those that are still bulls on emerging markets, the good news is that oil has been up, commodities are up, and they're very, very linked to emerging markets. Mm-hmm. So that's some positive there, but we are underweight emerging markets. I do wonder, too. I mean, I feel like when we went into the financial crisis and we really thought to some extent that the emerging markets would be immune. I remember being in India mm-hmm. like in December of '07, and we're thinking, okay, they're going to be fine because it's separate. They're growing. They're strong, blah, blah, blah. We found out everything was connected at that point. If something happens dramatically to emerging markets overall, what happens to developed markets? Is there some kind of backward connection or some other connection? Well, therefore, the biggest, obviously the biggest driver would be a rising dollar. Dollar rises, you know, then you have a lot of debt in emerging market countries that's dollar based. Then you would have a contagion where, okay, now you've started, you have inflated costs, you have other concerns, developed markets will definitely be hurt. Um, And we're seeing this even like... But is it a bigger, broader global picture or no? It's still then... We kept it, to the emerging market. You would think so, but there would there was always was, there always excuse me there always will be some contagion yeah. linked to it. But again, we are coming off a solid footing. We still have fairly low interest rates. We still have very good corporate earnings. So staying with this global theme, you know, one of the things that certainly is on a lot of CEOs' minds, and I would imagine investors as well, is tariffs, mm-hmm. trade. A lot of uncertainty. It feels like there was a yes. lot of worry, then there was less. How do you? play that out? Or how do you think about it, given the uncertainty there? We have about 30 seconds. So you had a great, great, great comment. Because think about corporate earnings. Earnings came out, we had a great earnings season. Historically speaking, the average stock that beats earnings comes tends to outperform by about 2% or jumps about 2%. We saw about 70 basis points during this time. Part of it was corporate, you know, corporate CFOs. They're afraid to stick their neck out and say, let's, let's you know, increase capital spending. Right now, it's the best time to increase capital spending. But they're like, oh, let's give money back to shareholders. But, you know, it, that's great, but all you're doing is raising EPS and revenues per it, share. It is kind of mind-boggling, right? When they, it's like the best of times for them, and they're not necessarily going out there full guns, saying, spending oh, money. Just keep a little a yeah. bit of this back for just now, just in case. Gene Goldman, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank Chief you. Investment Officer, Director of Research at Satera Financial Group, based in El Segundo, California, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.